We have, uh, Yeshua Tzion has been supporting Ezekiel, Project Ezekiel for a bunch of years, and uh, Bill and I uh, go back to 1985, so we've been, we've been connected for a while, and um, he is uh, laboring in Southern California to bring the good news of Yeshua to the um, Hebrew-speaking Israeli community and as well to Jewish people, and also to convey to the rest of the body, to the church, their need to support God's work among Israel. And um, so he's here to share the Word of God with us, and we're delighted to have you, Bill. Tadah Chaim, and Shabbat Shalom, friends. I want to thank you as a kehila, uh, uh, Yeshua Tzion, for your support of us, my wife Diana and I, and Operation Ezekiel over the years in Los Angeles. You know, there's over a half a million Jewish people in Los Angeles County. It's a major center for Jewish life. And the, the Hollywood Burbank movie entertainment industry in greater L.A. is largely led by Jewish people, founded by Jewish people. So think of the influential Jewish people there are in Southern California, so it's a great place to labor. I'll use this at the beginning and I'll put it aside later. Just to say that Matt and Janine, I don't know any, any of the others of you who may have been to the Israel Summit in Loveland over the last few days, but it was a very significant summit. It was sold out over 2,000 people at Resurrection Church in Loveland. And wow, what a sense of God's presence. What a sense of vision, optimism, people from all over the world that were there and there was just a sense of the timeliness of this, that the leaders of this movement are key leaders in, in Jewish ministry, in Messianic Jewish movement in Israel and internationally. And the sense was that we are at a very crucial time, um, significant time uh, for Israel, in, in world history, in world history, but for Israel, because the forces, of the forces that want to delegitimize Israel and, and, and oppose Israel are growing stronger both outside internationally, politically, and in the church. And, it's, and it was a time to call the broader church, body of Christ, to stand firm for Israel and to take action. The theme of the conference was from the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 11, where Daniel is called to, he says, those who do know their God will stand firm and take action. And actions that were taken there to collaborate and to recruit and to, and to call uh, the body of God's people to stand for Israel. So it's a very significant time. That's why I'm here now. So uh, if you want to see their, their website, the new website, it's called FIRM, F-I-R-M, Stand Firm, but it's an acronym, Fellowship of Israel Related Ministries, FIRM. And just look firm.org on the web and you'll see, that, see them and you can stand with us all. Um, I want to minister the Word to you today and minister the Word of God in a way that's a little different than standard preaching. Probably some of you know I've been doing storytelling as a, one of my main means of teaching and ministering for the last several years. So I want to tell you a story from the Word of God today. It'll be somewhat interactive uh, where I'll, I'll throw out some questions and have you discuss a few questions whether we're small enough of a group to do that. So I'm going to do that. Um, 
Also, I just want to say that I'm blessed to see some of the people that took my class at Denver Seminary here, several. Roger took my class at Denver Seminary that I taught a few years ago. And uh, also uh, Floyd. And uh, your name again? Sherry. Sh Sharon. Sharon. Yeah, Sharon. <laughs> and, uh, and David Katz. And uh, if I missed anybody, sorry, but several people who studied at Denver Seminary, blessed to see you folk. Um, yes, significant. I love Colorado. I love uh, Yeshua Tzion, and I appreciate your support. Boulder. Yes, I was radically born again and came to know Yeshua in Boulder, 1970. Some of you were still meandering in space in 1970, hadn't even come into the world. But 1970, I was a, I was a wandering hippie uh, experimenting with drugs. I was one of those baby boomer drug addicts. The, a lot of the leaders at the conference were <laughs> baby boomer drug addicts who came to the Lord back in the early 70s. I was one of them in Boulder. So I have a special place in my heart for Boulder. And for Denver, Colorado, I love the mountains. So it's good to be here. Chaim is always so hospitable when I come and I stay down in his little prophet's chamber in your basement there. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, what else can I say? I want, to, uh, I want to give you an introduction to the story before I tell the story. And I want you to listen well to the story because I'm going to ask you to retell it to your neighbor when you're done to the best of your, re your, of your recalls. So listen well. Um, anything else? I No, that's it. So I'm going to tell you, give you an introduction to the story. I'm not going to give you the reference to the story because I don't want you to turn in your Bibles. I want you to listen to it. After it's done, I'll give you the reference in Scripture. You can read it, but I want you to listen to it, take it in orally. It's a new way to really absorb and listen to this. And if you listen well and interact well, you'll be able to go home and tell this story to your family or to your friends or at work tomorrow. Uh, or uh, Monday, or at the coffee shop, or whatever. So listen well to it. Introduction of the story is this. It took place about the 9th century BCE, 9th century before the coming of Messiah, in uh, northern Israel. Now, the kingdom, the, Israel had split into the northern and southern kingdom by this time, and this was in the northern kingdom of Israel. The capital was in, in Shomron, Samaria. Uh, it was a time when there was war between Syria and Israel. Machadash. <laughs> Anything new. There was war between Syria and Israel then, and there's been wars between modern Israel and Syria. The king uh, of Syria was Ben-Hadad. The king of the, of the northern kingdom of Israel was Yoram. And um, it's about a Syrian general. Now think of this when, when we tell a story. Syrian general, so comparable today, it would be like one of the leaders of Hezbollah. That's, that's the kind of status he had with Israel. He was an enemy military leader. Hezbollah or Hamas commander, that's what he was like. Um, his name was Naaman. And Naaman in Hebrew, his Hebrew Aramaic are very similar. They spoke Aramaic up there. It was actually called Aram. Aram was Syria, Damascus, the same area. In the text, it'll call it Aram, but it's Syria, the same area. But Naaman, in Hebrew, Aramaic, means pleasantness. It's the male form of the name Naomi, Naomi, Naaman, pleasant. Keep that in mind as we go through the story. Um, another thing you probably need to know is that in those days, the people, even Israel sometimes, because Israel was falling into idolatry at this time, a lot of 
Baalism in Israel. In fact, this was at the time of Elisha, the successor of Eliyahu. And Elisha was the main prophet in Israel at that time. And uh, he was a great prophet, had great renown even in Syria. Uh, he, he's, he performed more miracles than any other prophet in Scripture, Elisha. He got the double portion from Eliyahu. He was ministering. Um, but they had this view of the people of territorial gods. You know, your God, the gods were tied to their territory. So your God is operative in your territory, and my God is operative in my territory. Keep that in mind as we go through the story. Um, okay, with that, I think that's enough, enough introduction to the story. I'm going to tell you the story now. It's in two parts. I'm going to tell you the first part, and then we'll discuss that and draw out the truths of the first part, and then we'll go into the second part of the story. Two parts go together so beautifully that uh, we, have to do, we have to do both parts. Uh, so here's, here is the sacred story. I'm going to... I'm not going to read it, I'm going to tell it, but I want you to know when it begins by opening the Bible, and then when I'm done, I'm going to close it. But listen up well, okay? Now, Naaman was the commander of the army of Syria, and he was held in high regard by his king because he was a fierce warrior, uh, and, and the Lord, Adonai, had given many victories to Syria through his his, his battles, his leadership. And he was highly respected. But he had sarat, often translated leprosy, but it's not really the modern leprosy. It was a kind of skin disease like leprosy uh, in Leviticus talks about it. But he had a skin disease. Let's just call it sarat. Um, now, Naaman, some of his raiding parties had gone on raiding expeditions into Israel and they had taken some captives. And one of the captives was a, a young Israeli girl they had taken captive. And she was made to be servant to Naaman's wife, slave girl. Now, one day, this Israeli slave girl said to Naaman's wife, um, you know, if only my master could get down to Samaria, there's a prophet there that could heal him. Now, Naaman got word from that, of course, from his wife, and he became hopeful. So he went to his king, the king of Aram, Syria, told him about what this Israeli girl said about this prophet down in Israel. And so the king of Aram says, yes, by all means, go down there. I will write a letter for you to the king of Israel asking him to heal you. And so the king writes the letter, and Naaman begins to head down to Israel with his entourage of horses and chariots and he took 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of fine clothing as gifts for the prophet, for the king. And he heads down to Samaria to the king, comes to the king and he presents the letter from his king, the king of Syria to the king of Israel. King of Israel reads the letter and it says, the man standing before you is Naaman, my servant, my commander. I want you to heal him of his sarat, his skin disease. And when, when the king of Israel reads that, he says, what? 
Who does he think I am? Does he think I'm God that I can heal people and make people alive and kill people? Surely he's just trying to cause some kind of conflict between us. The king of Israel said. And so he rends his garments. He rips his robes. You know, it's a sign of grief. He's just trying to make war with me, the king of Israel said. Um, now, Elisha, the prophet, who also lived there in Samaria, got wind that the king had rent his garments. And so Elisha sends a message to the king of Israel and says, tell the man to come down to me and he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman gets the message. He heads down to Elisha's house with his entourage of horses and chariots and wagon load full of gifts of gold and silver and sets of clothes and he heads down to Elisha's house. And now he expects Elisha to come out and greet him. He's an important man. Pomp, ceremony, and so on. But Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He sends a messenger with a simple message to Naaman. message says, Go wash seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be cleansed. And Naaman says, What? I expected him... I expected him to come out and, and call on the name of his God and wave his hands over me, you know, abracadabra, kind of wave his hands over me and, 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 and heal. He's telling me to go wash in this little river. We've got, we've got better rivers in Syria. We've got the Abana and the Farpar rivers in Syria, which are way superior to this little muddy Jordan River. I could have washed up there. And he just turns around in a hump and he begins to head back to Syria. But then Naaman's servants who were with him come to him and they beseech him and they say, oh, my father, uh, if the prophet had told you to do some, some difficult task for your healing, wouldn't you have done it? Why, why don't you simply do what he says and, and wash in the river? And so Naaman was entreated and he... Uh, he decided to, okay, I'll wash in the river. So he goes down to the Jordan and he dips seven times in the river. And he comes up and his skin is as clean and healthy and smooth as a newborn baby's. And he worships. He looks up and he's overwhelmed with joy. And he goes back to Elisha and he says, my Lord, I please accept these gifts. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. Please accept these gifts out of gratitude. Because now I know that there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. Adonai, your God, is the only true and living God, and I will worship him only. Please accept these gifts. But Elisha says, No. As Adonai lives, I will not accept any gifts. But then Naaman entreats him again, well, well, then at least, would you please give me two mule loads of earth to go back to my land because I will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God but the God of Israel, the true and living God, only Him. And, and also, would you please, in advance... Ask Adonai to pardon me. When I have to go in to the temple of Rimon, I'm still the, the chief officer of my king. And when he goes to worship, 
his God in the temple of Ribon. I have to assist him, and he even has to lean on my arm as he bows down in his temple to his God. I have to assist him, and I must bow with him. Would you ask Adonai to forgive me in advance for this? And Elisha Elisha says, go in peace. Lech b'shalom in this matter. Go in peace, go in shalom. And so Naaman begins to head back to Syria with his entourage of horses and chariots. That's the first part of the story. Now, we'll stop there for the first part. I want you to turn to your neighbor and just retell to the best of your recall that story uh, the best you can. Don't start with the introduction. Start with, now Naaman was the commander of the army of Syria. Start there and tell what you can remember. Turn to your closest neighbor and the person with the longest hair tell the story. That saves time in deciding who. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Hey, Michael. <laughs> you want to tell me the best you can recall? Okay. Um, let's see. So there was a man, Naaman, who was the commander of Syria. He had the disease, a skin disease. And um, during their raiding parties, there was a young uh, servant girl that had been captured of the nation of Israel. She was made to serve in Naaman's house. She told Naaman's wife if Naaman was only in Israel, he could be healed by the prophet Elisha, at which point his wife, Naaman's wife told Naaman, and he um, wrote letters to the king of Israel asking to be healed. Uh, the king of Israel was very upset because uh, he thought Naaman was asking him to do something he wasn't able to do. So um, they came to Israel, they found Elisha, and Elisha told Naaman to go and bathe seven times in the River Jordan. Naaman became upset because he, um, he didn't 
uh, he was hoping to do to bathe in his own rivers back in Syria, and he felt the rivers there were better than Jordan. And yeah. then one of his commanders said, if he had asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? How much more if you're being told to do something easy, why not just do it? So he dipped in the river seven times. He, um, his skin was restored to that of a baby, and he was healed, and he worshiped the Lord. Uh, then he wanted to give gifts of gold, silver, and clothing to Elisha, mm -hmm. but Elisha refused him, and so he then said, if it were possible, then could he take some dirt back so that he could stand before the Lord in Syria and worship him there. And then he also said, will you please pray for me that when I go in the house of Ramon, Syria's God, that I'll be, um, because I have to stand aside my king in worship there, will God please forgive me then? Yeah. And at that point, uh, Elisha said, go in peace. And Naaman went back to Syria. Excellent, Michael. Thank you. Okay, that's, that's enough time to have told it the best you can. I'm going to do what we call now an, a, a lead-through. I'm going to lead you. We've been through the story. I told you the story. You've been through it the best you could, but you probably only got maybe, what, 70, 80% of it, 90%. I'm going to lead us through it again because I want to cement the story in your mind so that we can talk about it. So I'm going to lead through. I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story again. You're going to chime in. I'll, you kind of finish my sentence. I'll start the sentence. You finish chime in. Retell it with me. We'll tell it together, okay? So Naaman was the commander of the army of and he served under his king and his king highly honored him and esteemed him because through him Adonai had given victories in battle to Syria. To Syria. But he had he had salat, skin disease. Now, some of his raiding parties were out down in Israel, and they captured young Israeli girl, and she became the servant of his wife. And one day, the Israeli slave girl says, you know, if my master could just get down to Syria, or get down to Samaria in Israel, he could be healed. So Naaman takes hope, and he goes to the king and tells the king, and the king says, yes. I'll, I'll write you a letter to the king of Israel asking him to heal you. So he does that. So Naaman heads down to Israel with his horses and chariots and gifts of gold, silver, fine clothing down to the king of Israel. Comes to the king of Israel, delivers the letter. King of Israel reads the letter and it says what? This is that's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. <laughs> He's dissing me. So yeah, right. But he says, he reads the letter, and the letter says, standing before you is my, and I want you to heal him of his disease. And the king of Israel says, what? Who does he think? Who does he think I am? Does he think I'm God? I can heal people? And he, but Elisha, heard that the king so he sends a message to the king and says tell the king the king send the man down to and he'll see that there's a prophet in 
Say it with me. There's a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman goes down to Elisha, waits at the door and expects Elisha to come out. But what, what does Elisha do? Sends a message and tells him what? How many times? Seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman says, oh, yes, I'll do that quickly. I like, I'd like to do that. Is it? No, he says, what? Mapitom. In Hebrew, Mapitom. We got better rivers in Syria. The Abana and the Parpar. Much better rivers than this little muddy. And so he begins to turn around and head home. But then his servants, Naaman's servants come to him and they say what? My father, had he, yeah, wouldn't you have, so why don't you simply, yeah. So Naaman decides to do it and he goes and he dips seven times and he comes up clean like a newborn ah, and he's overwhelmed and he just, he goes back to Elisha and he says, now I know that there's only one true living God, the God of Israel, Adonai, and I will worship him only. Please accept these. And Elisha says, well then please can I just have two mule loads of, so that when I go back, I, I will only sacrifice and give burnt offering only to the God of Israel. And also, would you, would you please ask Adonai to forgive me in advance when I need to go with my king into his temple to worship his God, Rimon. I have to assist him. Even when he bows down, I have to assist him. Would you ask Adonai to forgive me in advance? And Elisha says, no, you cannot go into a pagan temple. No, what's he say? He says, go in peace. Okay, that's the story. Now let's just unpack it for a few minutes with questions. You know, Yeshua was the great questioner. You know, it's, somebody did a study of how many times Yeshua was asked questions in the Gospels. It turns out he was asked questions 183 times. And 180 of those times, he answered those questions either with another question or a story. He very seldom answered questions directly. Because Yeshua knew that questions help people think and discover truth for themselves. So we're going to use questions to draw the truths out of this story. First, let's just go through it a bit. What, what do we learn about Naaman as a person from this first part of the story? What kind of person is he? Um, huh? Stubborn? Stubborn? Yeah. Arrogant and prideful? He's, what kind of man is he? I mean, he's... Yeah. Um, warrior, fierce warrior. He's commander of the army. And, um, uh, but he has this. What is that? What might that have been like? What do you think that might have been like to be an important political military figure, but you've got this. Huh? Just embarrassing? Wounded? Feeling wounded? Uh, hmm? Insecure. Insecure, maybe. 
Mm -hmm. Important man, but with a great flaw and a great problem. Um, very interesting that uh, you know he sent his his raiding units down to Israel. They take this Israeli slave girl. She serves his wife. Uh, what what do we learn? What can we learn maybe further about the character of Naaman and his wife from the relationship they have with this Israeli girl and and about the Israeli girl? What might we learn about them from what happens here? They trusted her. They listened to her. That's very interesting. They listened to this slave girl. Um, what does that say about their character, about Naaman's character? He listens to this lowly enemy Jewish girl. He's desperate. He could have just been desperate, yeah? Curious. Curious, yeah. Um, hmm? Teachable. Perhaps Naaman was teachable. Perhaps he had something that was, uh, he didn't, didn't realize he didn't know it all kind of a thing. That's very interesting. What about the girl, this Jewish girl, slave girl? What do we learn about her just from the simple thing that she says? You know, if my master could get down to Samaria and Israel, she's bold. What other choices did she have? She's a slave girl. She tells her masters, about a possible healing from a prophet in Israel. She didn't have to do that, did she? What other choices did she have than to say what she did? She could have been quiet. What would you have done? Uh, you know, um, compassionate. I mean, these are enemies. They took her captive, made her a slave, but she's helping them. Well, that says something about her. Very interesting, just in the broader picture of God's ways, what God is doing, that what may have been, where, where may have God been in this picture at this point? This Israeli slave girl with this enemy Syrian commander. Where may have God been here uh, acting already? Working a slave girl's life, yeah? Anybody else's life? <laughs> Maybe he's, yeah? Could he be seeking Naaman somehow? Naaman. Interesting. Interesting that he listens to her. So he goes, you know, there's a lot of protocol and authority, chain of command here. So he goes to the king, tells the king. King sends him with a letter. Goes, interesting that he goes to the king of Israel. He didn't go straight to try to search out this prophet. He went to the king of Israel. What, what might we learn about things Authority, yeah, the sense of what? Of respect for authority and the, yeah. Um. He was a diplomat. Hmm? He's a diplomat, yeah. Uh. Hmm? A show, show, show person, showman. Yeah, what does he bring with him, you know? All the 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of fine clothing, you know. Interesting. He's he's got this skin disease, but he's very interested in clothing. Maybe he had <laughs> clothing meant a lot to him, um, huh? He had faith. Yeah. Yeah. All those gifts. What do we learn about him taking all those gifts? He's trying to buy it. Maybe with all these gifts he's bringing down there. He thought he thought he's got to have to pay something for this healing. Yeah. Right. Right. Interesting. 
Uh, so he heads down there and uh, presents the letter to the king. And what might we learn about the king of Israel from what he says? What? Who does this, who does this king think I am that I can... Does he think I'm God? I can heal people? What, what, what does that say about the king of Israel? Huh? He's what? Defensive? Suspicious? Suspicious? Yeah, I mean, there's war between Syria and Israel. This is a message from the enemy king. I mean, what's he want from me, you know? Um, Self-centered, yeah. Interesting, yeah. To heal, yeah. The sense of, the sense of where does power come from, you know? Um, interesting. Well, he rends his garments. He, you know, rips his robes. It's a sign of grief. And, uh, but Elisha gets wind of this, sends a message. Elisha says, send the man down to me. He'll, he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. Goes down to Elisha. Expects, what is he? What is he expecting? <laughs> What's Naaman expecting from Elisha? Yeah, do all this. What was what was maybe Naaman's view of how healings happen or how miracles? Uh, you know, huh? Sensational. What? What's that? Really big show. Yeah, really big show. What kind of maybe world view, religious worldview he had? You know, he's coming from his, a pagan culture, polytheistic culture, the different gods of, uh, of, of Aram, war gods. Ramon was a fertility god. You know, what's his view of how religion works? Naaman, from this. Cultic, occultic, yeah. And in occultic... Religious activities, what, what's a lot of stuff that goes on? Kind of cause and effect, yeah. And uh, a lot of this kind of mumbo jumbo, abracadabra, ritual, <laughs> ritual and, and, and magic. And stuff. he's kind of expecting that, you know. But so Elisha, and think of the honor, does the honor shame kind of dimension here, too. This is a man of honor. He expects protocol and honor. He's an important commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. He expects to be treated. But what, is, what might we learn about Elisha as a prophet in God's ways through him by the message he sends, by, the way he, by what he does and says towards Naaman? He doesn't even come out and meet him personally. <laughs> what? He's not impressed. Elisha wasn't impressed. <laughs> what, what, what else might we learn about God's ways through the prophet, about Elisha's view of things, from what he does? Simply sends a message. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Hmm? About God's power, yeah. Huh? Humble. Humble. Being humble, yeah. Yeah. For Naaman, Naaman certainly had to, yeah. 
Yeah. Judy. Hmm? Some faith. Now, Amon evidenced some faith. Yeah? He certainly did when he... Now, now what, what choices, what other choices did Amon have when he gets this message? We see what he does. He's put out at first. He says, what is he, you know, I'm ex- I expected him to come out and do something great. He said, we got better rivers in Syria than this little Jordan. I could have washed, I could have washed myself in those rivers, washed myself in this little one. What does that say about his view of things? Very worldly. Hmm? Very worldly, yeah. Yeah. He said, I could have washed in the rivers in Syria. So what is he thinking about how healing <laughs> wash in the rivers? Huh? Doubt. Doubt. Something so simple, yeah. yeah. And now he's, we see what he, he had choices at this point. We see the choice he finally made, but what choice did he almost make was to, to go back home and reject the whole thing. He almost did that. But his servants beseech him, and he finally makes the choice. What do we learn about him when he makes that choice to actually do it? Judy said he had evidence faith. What was his faith? You know, what does it say about his character, his, his, his inner moral life, when he finally does what he's asked to do? What does he have to do? What's going on inside? He has to humble himself. He has to humble himself. He's snubbed by this prophet, asked to do a simple thing, and he could have he huffed out of there, I'm out of here, I'm not going to take this humiliation. But instead, he finally does it. It says a lot about his teachability, somebody said, his, his humble, humbling himself, faith, very interesting. He does it, he's cleansed. Now what goes on? He's cleansed, what does he say? Remember, he comes from this pagan worldview, animistic, polytheistic, magical worldview. But now when he's cleansed, he comes up and says, says to Elisha, now I know there is no God in all the world but the God of Israel, Adonai, your God. What's going on? What's going on? What? Born again. Born again before it was possible. Uh, yeah. Um, He's got new baby, born again. (laughs) New baby skin, new baby faith. Yeah, but isn't it, what's impressive to you about what he says? Now I know there's no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. He's a Syrian army commander, enemy of Israel. And now he says there is no God in all the earth. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> could could have been could have been one one of the fruits of his new faith. Yeah. <laughs> There's some application to the story. Let's pray the Hezbollah leaders uh, get sarat and, and seek get des- desperate enough to come down, get desperate enough to come and find where the true prophets are, huh? <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Um, but so he, back to this, you know, he wants to then offer all these gifts. Offer all these gifts. 
And when Elisha says, no, as Adonai lives, I will not accept any gifts. What do we learn about Elisha from that? About God's ways in him. Hmm? He's what? It's not his power. What else might we learn about? God's blessings are free. Can you buy them? Can you pay for them? Elisha says no. Very interesting. Man of integrity. Man of integrity. Elisha, yeah. I mean, he could have take he could have got rich off this this shtick, healing people and getting all kinds of gifts, you know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no. As Adonai lives, I will not accept gifts. Think of the wisdom behind that. Um, so then, then this last appeal, though, of Naaman, you know, uh, well, at least give me two mule loads of earth to take back to my countries because I will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god but Adonai. What, what do we learn about him from that? About Naaman's heart or views, beliefs from that? Hmm? He still believes in the territorial God idea. Yeah, he could well have. He could well have. Um, could it be like Pharaoh? Like Pharaoh? Yeah, he could be like Pharaoh and have the next reason more stiff, more stubborn. Yeah, he could have. He could have reacted stubbornly. And, uh, but I'm, I'm just impressed with this man, Naaman. The, the depth of... I mean, somebody said he got a healing that was more than skin deep. He was healed deep. He was radically changed inside, yeah. He confessed with his mouth and it appeared to believe with his heart. Yes, very good. Put that in New Testament language. He <laughs> confessed with his mouth there's only one true God and believed in his heart and his actions seemed to, his actions followed what he believed. Very interesting. Uh, and so there is, there is a verse in Exodus about building altars of earth to worship Adonai and so on. So uh, maybe he didn't know that, but maybe he knew more than he knew. Um, anyway. Um, so he, uh, but this last part of this first part of the story is very interesting. He says, now, please ask Adonai to forgive me in advance. When I have to go back to my country, I'm still in my position as commander. And and I'm I'm the first aide for my king. And <coughs> I have to assist him. And when he, even when he goes into his temple to worship, he leans on my arm and I must assist him. Please ask Adonai to forgive me in advance when I have to assist him to do that. Now, we see Elisha says, go in shalom. What, could, what other choices did Elisha have at that point? What else could he, what might he have said, what might some have expected him to say to Naaman? Huh? Don't do that. Don't go into a pagan temple. What else might he have said? Could have prayed a long prayer over him, yeah. Does anything, what? Anything? Stay in Israel. He could have said, stay in Israel. Now you've been converted to the God of Israel. You must stay here, and you must be circumcised, and you must worship with us. As Israelites, you cannot go back to your pagan ways. He could have said that. Do you think there's people that maybe expected him to say that? 
to Naaman, but he doesn't. He says, go in peace. Huh? Because he's now a witness to his people. Yes, very interesting. Very interesting. At this point, I want to show some slides. If, is it Isaac? Yep. Just to show a few. Oh, you got one up already here. That, this is just a, an artist's depiction. Can we turn off this light or you're not going to be able to see it? Just to turn off the top light. This is just an artist's depiction. That's Naaman in the middle there. His disease is gone. That's Elisha refusing the gifts. He's saying, no, I don't receive any gifts. Now, next slide. There's when he, rec- when he receives his healing. Wow. Just think, his clear skin, he receives his healing. God. And he's deeply transformed inside. I mean, he didn't have much knowledge at all of God, of the scriptures. He didn't know the scriptures. He didn't know anything. He was a polytheist at core. He was raised that way. But now he's, he's healed. And he, his confession is incredibly, incredible. Something must have happened deep it's deeper than skin deep, for sure. Next slide here. Um, now here, I want to actually I want to come back to that because this this is a chiasm that shows the Hebraic structure of this story, but it goes into part two of the story. So we're going to wait on that. So hold on that a minute. Um, hold on them all. Just close them down just for a minute. Um, I just want to draw some because of time. We've only got maybe ten minutes left. Time. Because of time, we c- I could draw you out more with questions, but I do want to give you uh, some of my own applications. We're going to move to applications now. Today, today, do, does this kind of thing happen today? Are there pagans today who worship other gods, who worship false gods, who, are, who, who uh, encounter the true and living God and get healings more than skin deep? Yeah, anybody have a s- brief story about that happening? People you might know who come from a very ungodly diff- or, or a different religion and have come and come to know God and have been deeply transformed. <coughs> yeah. I, I have a friend I used to work with. He's an extremely intelligent man. He, uh, he actually met some material with his IQ was that high. And he used to love, uh, when he was in his late teens and early 20s, he loved debating Christians because they'd leave him in the middle of the floor of Babylon. One day he said that he said, "If you're really real, show me who you are." And he said, "God unfolded ahead and, and showed him." And now this man is completely the exact opposite. And a lot of people try to task him because uh, he's a Christian, and they find out that they're dealing with some of the most intelligent people that they've ever that they've ever met. And he, um, every word that comes out of his mouth, everything he does is measured, and he doesn't even have to think about it. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, because of time, I'm going to tell the second part of the story now. They go together so beautifully, and then we'll do these slides and, and draw some final applications. Uh, but the second part of the story is this. Listen up, because I want to have you turn to your partner again and retell the second part of it. And this, this time, the person who, who told the story for the first part listens as, the, as your partner tells the second one. See, everybody gets a chance to tell. But here's the story. Listen up. So as, as Naaman is traveling back to... Surya, with his entourage. Gehazi. Gehazi was Elisha's servant. Elisha the prophet. Gehazi had been witnessing all this. He saw 
Elisha's instructions, he saw Naaman cleansed of leprosy or, or, or tzarat. He sees Naaman refuse the gifts, or Elisha refused Naaman's gifts and head back to Syria. So Gehazi runs after Naaman and he stops the chariot. And Naaman turns and says, Well, Hakolba Shalom, everything, everything in Shalom, everything okay? And Gehazi says, Yes. All is in shalom, but, but my master told me, he sent me a message, we have two students coming down from Ephraim, from the school of the prophets, and they need 75 pounds of silver, and they need a few loads of new, new sets of clothing. Could you give them to me? Um, and uh, Naaman says, sure, fine, take 150 pounds of silver, 750 pounds of silver, take 150 pounds of gold and several sets of fine clothing, take them. And so Gehazi takes those, and he has a couple servants. They load two bags of the silver, put them on a mule, and they head down, and they hide all these gifts that he got from Naaman in his house. Then he goes and stands before Elisha. Gehazi does. And Elisha says, Gehazi, where have you been? I I missed you. And Gehazi says, oh, I've been here all along. I've not gone anywhere. And Elisha says, is this the time for you? Didn't you realize I knew what you were doing? My spirit was with you. Is this the time for you to go and take silver and gold and olive trees and sheep and oxen and servants and, and, and make yourself wealthy? Because you've deceived me and you deceived Naaman, the, the skin disease that clung to Naaman will now cling to you and to your descendants forever. And Gehazi turned, and by the time he left the door, he was just white with the skin disease. That's the end of the story. Now tell it to your neighbor, the one who, who told, listen this time. Gehazi. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you want to briefly tell that part? <laughs> so, at this point, uh, Naaman is headed back to Syria with the gold and the gifts that he had brought. Yeah. And Gehazi sees him and goes after him. And when he gets to him, Naaman asks him, is everything well? Is, is there shalom? And he says, oh yes, there is shalom. But um, Elisha has told me that there are two people coming and we need gold and we need, I mean silver, we need silver and we need some clothing to equip these two men with. And Naaman says, yes, go ahead and take it. And he 
They load the items onto a mule, and he also sends two of the servants with him. They go back to a house and they store the treasure, the silver and the clothing. Then uh, Gehazi goes back to Elisha, and Elisha tells, asks him, where have you been? And Gehazi says, oh, I've been right here the whole time. And Elisha says, I've been, you know, don't you know I've been with you and I know where you've been and what you've done? And he said, now because you have taken, and is this the time to be taking sheep and oxen and clothing and silver and gold? And he says, now because you've taken these things, uh, the leprosy that Naaman had will now cling to you and your descendants. And Forever. before Naaman yeah. left the house, he had turned white with the skin. Excellent. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, because of time, we could, dig, we could dig into the observations of this second part too and, and dig it out like we did. But because of time, I'm just going to ask one, just a couple observations about Gehazi. What do you learn about Gehazi's character from this? Huh? <laughs> How does he compare with Naaman? How does Gehazi's character compare with Naaman? Almost the opposite, isn't it? You know, very interesting. What's going on? Gehazi, he, he saw, how many miracles did Gehazi see? A lot. Walking with a servant of Elisha. Does he know the power of God? And what does he do? How does he think he can get away with this? What does that say about the human heart sometimes? He thinks he can get away with this. He lies, greed. Does it seem harsh to you that the sentence that he, that the, 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 the skin disease that clung to Naaman will not cling to him and to his descendants forever? Yeah, that's probably why it died out. There's no Gehazi lepers. <laughs> okay, because of time, I would, if we had time, another half hour, we'd draw out, I'd draw it out from you, all the observations and applications to today and so on. We'd, I'd dig the truth out of you, and that's how I like to do this, but it would take another half an hour. But because I'm, I have a kind of special burden about some applications to this that I want to give you, I'm going to basically teach you the rest of it with these slides. So let's see the slides now. Turn off that light again, please. This is what's called the chiasm. It gives the structure of the story. Isn't this interesting? Uh, a chiasm in, in, is uh, where A corresponds to A1, B to B1, C to C1, and D to D1 in the story. So Naaman's skin disease clings to him. Here Naaman's skin disease clings to Gehazi. A, A and A1. Here the servant and his master, that is Naaman and his king, have an open conversation which leads to healing. Here be the servant and the master, that's Gehazi and Elisha, a deceptive conversation leading to disease. See the opposite? They correspond. Here Adonai's healing is priceless, free. But here Gehazi put a price on healing. Put a price on, on the healing. Somebody said that uh, Naaman's healing was free, but Gehazi's disease was earned. Here, uh, Elisha says, go in shalom. But then Naaman says, is there shalom? Is there shalom, Gehazi? Are you sure? 
Shalom means well-being, wholeness, healing. Gechazi, is there shalom? Ain. So you see that beautiful structure. And in God's providence and the inspiration of this story, it, it, it contrasts Naaman and, and Gechazi beautifully. But to some applications I want to draw, this is the next slides here. I may have to go back. Was there one before that? Um, chiasm. I guess just the pictures. Then there's the chiasm is next. Uh, okay, the next one then. This is a, in the missiological community, mission research community that I'm a part of at the U.S. Center of World Mission, Pasadena. They study what God is doing uh, in the Muslim world and the Hindu world. And they have this continuum. It's called the C spectrum, from C1 to C5. C stands for contextualization of the gospel or Christ-centeredness. And uh, so here's C1 through C5. C, C1 is, uh, you know, 19th century missionaries, when they go to Africa or India, they would bring their Western form of Christianity and they would bring, make converts out of the people there and they would teach them Western ways, build churches with steeples and sit in pews and sing Western hymns, Christian hymns, and, and they would make Western Christians out of them. They would separate them from their people and their community and make Western Christians out of them. Um, but then, then as the missionary movement uh, it developed through the 20th century, they learned more and more about how God respects the culture of the people that we bring the gospel to, and they don't have to change their culture or their identity. And so it became more of a contextualizing of the gospel, not just translating the scriptures to their language, but allowing them to express their culture, express their faith in Yeshua through their own culture. So C2 was pretty much the same, except the services are con conducted in the language of the people. That's C2. Pretty much Western Christianity, but now they have the Bible and their services in their own language. C3 is more toward... Uh, the gospel becoming indigenous within that culture. They've incorporated many non-religious cultural forms into the, of the region into their community, such as dress and art. Hudson Taylor, early on, he dressed like Chinese and ate like Chinese, and they, they you know, identified more with the culture, dress, art of the people. Um, those in the Muslim world, they say that, that are accepting the gospel of C3, they still reject any purely Islamic religious elements. They're followers of Yeshua, Isa Hamasi, in Arabic, Isa Hamasi, Yeshua the Messiah. But they reject anything religiously Islamic. They still call themselves Christians, but try to have a more contextualized presence. C4 is more almost bridging between the Islamic community and the Christian community. Uh, C4, and I'm just explaining to you now what's happening and what mis mission researchers are finding out. Some of this stuff is as hard for me to take as what I think is going to be hard for some of you to hear. It's hard for me, too, because like Chaim said yesterday, I've hitched my wagon to the Jewish people for the last 30-some years. And when I learn about this, it's always hard for me to grasp. But if God is doing something, we want to be aware of it and, and consider it, don't we? What seems to be happening, C4 and C5, there are Muslims, and the same in the Hindu world, who are beginning to follow Yeshua... C4, similar to C3, but they incorporate some Islamic religious elements into their community, like avoiding pork, 
praying five times a day in Islamic style, but praying to Yeshua, using Islamic dress and using Islamic terminology. They call themselves followers of Isa, Yeshua. They don't call themselves Christians, just like Messi many Messianic Jews don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves Messianic Jews. Well, the same thing seems to be happening in the Muslim community. Their meetings are not held in traditional church buildings. They're not considered to be Muslims by the Muslim community. But then C5 goes even further. These followers of Isa retain their legal and social identity within the Muslim community. They reject or reinterpret any part of Islamic practice that contradicts the Bible. They're faithful to the Bible. They may or may not attend mosque regularly, and they're actively involved in sharing their faith in Jesus with other Muslims. They may call themselves Muslims or followers of Isa Hamasi, Muslim followers of Isa Hamasi. Uh, they may be viewed by their community as Muslims that are a little unorthodox. Uh, and then there's even a C6 where these are secret believers, secret followers of, of Yeshua. Now, there's parallel. These are called insider movements. Let me let's see some pictures. Why I brought this up is because what, what did Elisha say to Naaman? Go in peace. You can go back to your pagan community and culture. You can continue to go through the motions with your king, even going into the pagan temple with your king. Because I know you worship only Adonai. I know you worship in your heart. You had a healing more than skin deep. And you only worship Adonai, the God of Israel, the only true and living. I know that. So you can go back and you can go through the motions in your community, Naaman, because you have to. I think this is a story... I'm coming to see for a lot of Muslims today and, they, and Hindus. They can't leave their community. They follow Yeshua. But somebody said over here, they can be a witness to their own community by staying within their community and witness to Yeshua. And the seed of the gospel, the leaven of the gospel, like mustard seed, can be in. They can win more of their community, more of the Muslim community and Hindus to faith in Yeshua. And over time, say over a generation, they'll shed more of the old, the old ways and become purer in their faith over time. This basically happened in Europe too. And now, they're, now here's, here's the Hindu insider movements. These are, uh, these are followers of Yeshua, uh, but, and, they're, and they're celebrating Yeshua's Supper, the Lord's Supper. But they're using for it, turn to the next slide, they're using instead of bread and wine, they're using banana and coconut milk for the Lord's Supper. And they will say, well, what if Yeshua came to India? There's not that many grapes in some parts of India, and, and bread is harder to come by. Wouldn't Yeshua have used what was close by, banana and coconut milk, for the Lord's Supper? Maybe he would have. I mean, it's hard for us to... <laughs> but th I'm, I'm just, this is happening. This is happening in the Hindu, Hindu world and the Muslim world. Next slide. Um, here's Muslims praying on their rugs. And there are followers of Isa, Yeshua, doing that and worshiping only Yeshua, but doing it within their Muslim community today. And, and I know it's hard to take, but it's happening. There's some statistics from the, some of the best research done by the Center for Global Christianity at, at Gordon-Conwell that gives us some statistics on this. So let's see that. Yeah, if I can read this. Is there another slide that... Can you do that pretty quick? Get the other one up that can read it. Here it is. Um, Herbert Hofer's Churchless Christianity concluded the number of Hindu Christ followers exceeded the number of official Christians in the area he researched in South India. 
They're called Yesu Bhaktis, devotees of Jesus, but within the Hindu community. According to Todd Johnson at the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, as of 2010, about 5.9 million non-Christians were following Christ from within the context of their own religious and cultural traditions. These include insider movements as well as hidden and secret believers. The insider movements as well as the hidden and secret believers. The center's estimate for the year 2000 for these types of believers was 4.6 million, which means that they grew from 2.5% per year from the year 2000 to the year 2010, or twice as fast as Christianity as a whole. 85% of these individuals are either Hindus or Muslims. They don't identify as Christians. They still identify as Hindus or Muslims, but they follow Jesus only. <coughs> Given current trends, these were expected to grow to 6.5 million by mid-2014. Um, this is Naaman going back to his pagan culture and worshiping only God there. Next picture. Uh, here's, a, here's a peanut strip. This applies to all of us. Uh, he says, I hear you're writing a book on theology. He says, I hope you have a good title. He says, I have the perfect title. The title for his book on theology was, Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Many theologians need to title their book that. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? <laughs> Let's just take that to heart. I, I was, uh, uh, Rabbi Chaim wanted me to mention, too, that there are deeper insider movements within Orthodox Judaism, also in Israel. You know, the Messianic Jewish movement is pretty separate from the Orthodox mainline synagogues in the Jewish world. But there are Jewish believers in Yeshua now who go to Orthodox synagogues every Shabbat. They worship with their, with their fellow Jews as Orthodox Jews who don't believe in Yeshua yet, but they worship Yeshua within those synagogues. They're called insider movements within Orthodox Judaism. It's happening. But what's really mind-boggling is it's happening in Islam, in the world of Islam, and in the world of, of, of the Hindu world as well. And we don't have to judge. God's the judge. But... I found a very interesting parallel with uh, the Parashat Yitro. Parashat Yitro for today. Jethro, who was it over here that commented on it, said he remained a priest of Midian. Now he knew the true God, Yitro, knew the true God, the God of Israel, the God of Moses, but he remained a priest of Midian. He remained part of his own, he was an Arab Bedouin man, he remained part of his community and probably did some of the same customs and traditions that his community did, though he knew the true God. So my only thing I want to leave us with is if God is doing this today, part of the unity, the teaching of the unity of the body is we have to accept those who God accepts. And if they accept and follow Yeshua within a community that's very strange from ours and we have been willing to judge and condemn, but if God is accepting them, we have to accept them too. It's just something to pray about. I, it's, just as, it's just as hard for me to handle as it is for probably some of you. And you don't have to make any judgments about it, but just be aware it's happening. And maybe it's part of what God is doing to penetrate these large religious blocks of the world and plant the seeds of the gospel and bring them, bring them to himself. Was there a final slide there? Uh, 
just, there's, here's kind of a modern day Naaman. He's a believer in Yeshua in the Arab Muslim world. Uh, think of him as a brother. If he follows Yeshua, but he's still in the Muslim world, he's our brother. And we want to be in unity with everybody who knows Yeshua. I think that's the, was that, that was the last slide, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's, that's my application from Naaman going back in peace. And of course the application for, in, but I'm preaching to the choir here, one minute preaching to the choir. This is what the replacement theology, supersessionist theology people need to hear in the Christian world, is that Naaman, in order to be healed as a Gentile, he had to go to Israel. He had to humble himself and realize that unless he dipped in the Jordan River, he couldn't be healed. Unless he listened to the prophet of Israel, he couldn't be healed. There's Christians in the replacement theology tradition today that need to humble themselves and say, I have to dip in the Jordan River. My source of healing is from Israel. I have to listen to the prophets of Israel or I won't be healed. Unless I humble myself and say, my source of healing and salvation is in Israel. And from the prophets of Israel, I have to dip in the Jordan River. Unless I humble myself and accept my source is in Israel, I won't be healed. That's the message that replacement theology people need to hear. And, but I'm preaching to the choir when I say that, so I didn't go very deep into that. But us who are in the Messianic movement, maybe we need to hear this other message today. And all of us think, need to think outside the box sometimes and realize that God's ways are not our ways and his uh, thoughts are not always our thoughts. And he has a bigger, a bigger heart than we think sometimes. Anyway, that's my story. <laughs> okay. Just a uh, brief personal word. When my folks came to faith in the early 50s, uh, we were way over there in C1 uh, because we were taught that if you were a Jew who accepted Yeshua, you put off everything, anything and everything that was Jewish. So what we sang were Western hymns translated into Hebrew. We met on Sunday. Uh, we didn't celebrate the feast. Um, and that was part of how we were, we were taught. And, and it's been a blessing to see the last 30 years or so that the Lord is saying, no, I have made you who you are. You need to celebrate and, uh, and, uh, and worship me within the culture that I've given you. And it's been a real joy and a delight to do that. And at the same time, as Bill pointed out, you have to withhold judgment and let God be the judge because there are folks within our community, the Messianic Jewish community, who are much more intensely involved uh, in following uh, traditional Judaism of one kind or another. And you can point fingers and say, this is not on the money. Or you can say, you know, God knows all things. God is a righteous judge. By the way, we still have people uh, in the church, fellow believers, friends of mine who are pastors, who then challenge, not challenge, but who want to know why we don't have a cross. Why, uh, whether that means that we don't believe in Yeshua's death and resurrection on the cross. So this is part of the picture, and Bill, we bless you, and thank you for coming and sharing the word with us. 
and I just want to take a moment and pray, um, and then we'll have the Kiddush, and it will be dismissed uh, to go upstairs for the Oneg. Lord God, we thank you that your ways are not our ways, that our th your thoughts are not our thoughts, that just as the heavens are above the earth, Lord, you, your thoughts are above our thoughts, and your ways are way above our ways. Thank you, Lord God, for bringing each one of us to know you, bringing each one of us into your kingdom, Lord God, as we are, and we pray, Lord God, for the unity and diversity, for the ability, Lord God, to celebrate who you have made us and to draw together, Lord, as fellow disciples of Yeshua. And Lord God, we pray for your blessing on Operation Ezekiel. We pray, Lord, for Bill and Diana, those who labor with them. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your grace and favor and provision upon them in every single respect. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.